Amen. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Are you glad to be in the house of the Lord today? Give him a hand clap of praise. Amen. We, I never take it lightly that God has given me and you another opportunity to gather in this sacred spot uh, to worship him in the beauty of his holiness. Uh, David said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Uh, so this is, a, this is a time of worship, a time of joy, because this joy that we, that we have, uh, the world didn't give it to us. Jesus gave us this joy. Amen? Amen. 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 I want to thank uh, Tony Benjamin and his brother, uh, Derek Mitchell, for sharing uh, their story. And, uh, and their story is, is fitting uh, to what I'm going to share with you today from this particular passage of Scripture, which was so beautifully read uh, by Tony and by Crary Simons. And so we thank God for this opportunity. Over the past uh, three weeks, we have been operating and preaching and teaching from the theme, uh, I see you, uh, that God sees us, and for God to see us means that he cares. And there are times in our lives where we're uh, at ground zero, and God ushers us into his intensive care unit of his holy presence. And he spends concentrated time on us and begins to refresh us, to revive us, to give us a fresh awakening of, of his presence. And we've seen that in the story of Hagar, and uh, we've seen that by a special visit from Elijah on last Sunday. And I was so glad that Elijah showed up because I didn't have to preach that Sunday. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen. But one thing I want us to notice uh, as we get into this passage today is in the story of Hagar, we see how God cared for Hagar. He looked after her, even when she had been uh, mistreated by Sarah and, and Abram. And then we see in the story of Elijah how God cared for Elijah. He fed him. Uh, he gave him rest. He replenished him. And he redirected him. Uh, today, I want us to look at, make a transition from how God cares for us and how that understanding of God caring for us and how we care for one another. Because whenever God cares for us, it doesn't just end there. God uh, empowers us, as we'll see in this text, uh, to care for one another, that he expects us to, uh, to be people of compassion, uh, to be people who meet, who meet the needs of others. And so I, I want us to, to think in those terms, how do we care for one another? How do we care for the community? How do we care for our environment? 
How does God caring for us, what bearing does God caring for us have on us caring for one another? We're going to entertain that question today. One writer uh, put it this way. She said, a key commonality in our Christian faith is our status as image bearers of God, as recorded in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Human dignity has almost always been grounded in the Imago Dei. Uh, when we deny someone's status as an image bearer, we risk denying them dignity, which takes us all down the dangerous paths of slavery, communistic oppression, capitalistic exploitation, and genocide, as we have seen throughout history. Whether we would come out and say it or not, sometimes we do not see unbelievers as God's image bearers because we as the church are that representation, right? Wrong. And I, I want us to understand that because it, it, this statement uh, really really helped me to understand how important the Imago Day and how important it is for us as Christians to see those who are not yet believers, because we don't know when they may come, become believers. We don't know whether they are elect or not. Only God knows that. But what we must come to see is that people who are unbelievers are God's image bearers as well. Four years ago, I was driving down Mercer Street, and I was on my way somewhere, and the traffic was very congested, and there was, out in the middle of the, of the, the side road there, a man holding a sign saying, human, in need. And I couldn't stop looking at him. Uh, I, I almost didn't make the green light because I was staring at his sign and I was looking at him and his sign simply stated, human in need. Now, never had I seen a sign like that because most of the times you see someone saying, I need help, uh, I need some food. Uh, any, any amount of money will help. Uh, and some people have been so bold to say, you know, I'm just going to be honest, I need money for beer. But he said, his sign said, human in need. And it arrested my attention. And so as I drove down Mercer Street, I had to make a U-turn because I wanted to meet this man. I wanted to see what his needs were. And I drove back around, and he was nowhere to be found. Drove down a side, side street, could not find him. But his sign made an indelible mark on my mind that to this day 
all I can see are those words, human in need. And really what he was saying is that I don't want you to see me as homeless. I want you to see me as human. I don't want you to see me as someone who has a drug addiction. I want you first and foremost to see me as human. I don't want you to see me as a black man or a white man or, or a woman or a child. I want you first and foremost to see me as human. And really, brothers and sisters, we're all human. Whether we are associated with being Republican or Democrat, first and foremost, we're human. Whether we are associated, whether we are black or white, uh, we, are we are human, first and foremost. Before we were Christians, we were human. And I want us to think about that because at the heart of this passage, it, it implies that the men, the women, the people who are in need are human beings. But I also want us to think about this when it, when it comes to care, when it comes to Christian care, that Christian care is a form of discipleship. And I want us to think about that, that Christians should be the most caring people in the world. We serve a God who cares for the lost, the poor, the sick, the marginalized, the lonely, the, me the mentally ill, and the traumatized, the LGBTQ plus community. He cares for them. The Christian ministry of care rests on the fact that God divinely enables us to care for one another, to care for the community, to care for those for the least of these. And through our worship of God and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, we receive spiritual strength to care for one another. And this brings us to our text today. We, we've seen the story of care. The scripture has been read in our hearing. And the first thing that we see in this passage is that Jesus is the final judge. Uh, and I want to say that again, that Jesus is the final judge, that this passage portrays the last judgment and second coming of Jesus Christ. What it says in verse 31 the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand, and the goats at the left. And then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the 
the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Stop right there, because I want us to understand that this, this passage begins with a typical Matthean language of Jesus as the Son of Man. And Matthew uses this title, the Son of Man, approximately 32 times, which implies that Matthew wants us to take notice of this designation of Jesus, that Jesus, in all of these texts and passages, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. No one else refers to Jesus in this manner, but he himself. And it's possible that Jesus refers to himself 32 times as the Son of Man because he wants us to understand that he identifies with, with humanity, that he's very God of very God, but he's very man of very man, that Jesus entered into our human reality and became one of us to redeem all of us. So we see within the person of Jesus, he brings the divine and human together, but he becomes the son of man to take away the sins of the world. And also, I want us to notice here that this is what we call the Olivet Discourse. And prior to this particular passage, Jesus uses four parables to talk about being prepared for his second coming. And he talks about this and he expresses the, the urgency and the gravity of being prepared when he comes back the second time. Jesus' parables as focus on getting one's life prepared for his second coming. But the text doesn't stop with the Son of Man. He goes on, he, he uses the word shepherd, he uses the word king, and often kings were considered shepherds of their country. They were leaders, they, they led, they cared for the kingdom. And so the king in this text, is identified as the Son of Man. The Son of Man is Jesus. Jesus uses the label king to emphasize his royal function as a judge, and this is specifically used as it relates to his second coming. The title king was often viewed as, as a shepherd. And so this, this was the case as it related to the compassionate leadership of the role of king. And so the, the son of man motif in the Gospel of Matthew is, is critical to understanding the unfolding drama of redemption and reconciliation between the nations and within humanity. That the kingdoms in conflict will ultimately be resolved in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what this particular passage represents that in this parenthetical time, nations will be, we be against nations. Scripture also tells us that fathers may be against son and mothers will 
be against daughters, that, that there will be this, this friction in society because at our very core, we are sinful people. And so Jesus is the only one that can bring nations together. He's the only one that can truly bring a father and son together. He's the only one that can truly bring a, a mother or daughter together. Because when we look at society today, I've never seen more friction and tension in society than I've seen today. And in my mind, I'm saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In my mind, I'm saying, Lord, we, we need you, Lord, right now. In my mind, I'm saying, Lord, Lord, please bring some sense of unity between the nations. No president can make it happen. No political party can make it happen. No policies can really make it happen like Jesus can. And we as God's people know that better than anybody else. And so also I want us to notice here that the sheep in this passage are identified as followers of Jesus who have imitated the compassionate behavior of Jesus with deeds of mercy, deeds of compassion. Jesus refers to them as righteous because they have been seen by Jesus doing the things that Jesus does. Let me say that again. They have been labeled and called righteous because they have been seen by Jesus doing the things that Jesus does. And this text seems to imply that Jesus has recorded their deeds and taken notice of them, that sheep are characterized by their righteous behavior and actions. Sheep follow the shepherd. And so this dichotomy between the, the goats being on the left and the sheep being on the right uh, carries with it the idea, you know, sheep tend to be more followers than goats are. And what we see here in this text that he, he uses this parabolic example, but the whole text is not a parable, just the first few verses he uses as a parabolic example to show the relationship of the shepherd to the sheep and the relationship of the shepherd to the goats. But he says that he's going to separate the goats from the sheep, which implies that Jesus is the final, the final judge, that we as Christians can't send anybody to heaven, amen somebody, and we as Christians and as a church can't send anybody to H-E-L-L. And I, I think we need to understand that because we live in a society today, as one of, one of my friends stated, that we have, it seems like we have raised a generation of judges and lawyers. Now, they don't have a judge degree, and they don't have a law degree, but they will quickly judge you on Instagram, Twitter, 
Facebook, what are some other ones? That they will quickly judge you and critique you, but we as Christians can't send anybody to heaven or H-E-L-L. I'm so glad that Jesus is the final judge because if my life was in your hands, amen, somebody. I, I don't know where I would be right now. If, if my life was in your hands or if your life was in my hands, I don't know where you would be right now. But I'm so glad today that Jesus is the final judge. This is what this text is, is telling us today, that he will separate the sheep from the goats. And there, there will come a time in the second coming that Jesus will make that decision. He will do the separation. And that, that's, the, that's the biggest point. That's the thing that we must rest in, that, that Jesus is the final judge. And so that tells us that as Christians, sometimes we, we need to withhold judging people and let Jesus do that. Uh, it tells us that we need to suspend uh, judgment and declaring someone guilty or innocent and let Jesus do that. Uh, we, we, we need to be careful. We need to be slow to judge, just as it means to be slow to anger, we need to be slow to judge as well. And so here, here we find Jesus letting his disciples and his audience know that there will come a day where I will separate the sheep from the goats. But not only that, I want us to see here what Jesus says to the sheep, to the righteous. He says, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And this is what I love, the righteous said, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you, a stranger, and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it? that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you. And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Now at first reading this, this, this passage, it, it, it it brings some questions to my mind, and some scholars are asking the question or have come to the conclusion that Jesus is only saying that this reference 
refers to, to Christians. That this reference, Jesus is saying that when we, is just referring to, to Christians. And then there are others who say, well, it, it, it refers to the Jewish people. And then there are others who say that this reference, as we begin to read it in its totality, refers to all of humanity. And I would argue the latter, but not exclusively. But I, I would argue that it's the, the, later in, the latter interpretation that it refers to all people because it says all the nations, all the peoples of the earth will be gathered under the rulership and the judgment of Jesus. It didn't say all the Jewish people. It didn't say all the Christians. It says all the nations will come together, but they will be judged person by person. So we, in order for this, this to make sense, and it has to imply all of the nations. The beauty of this passage is that Jesus says, basically, brothers and sisters, that Jesus is saying that when we see the homeless, when we see those who are sick, when we see those who are in prison, see them as Jesus himself. See them as the human in need. See that individual as Jesus himself. When we see those who are addicted to drugs, see them as Jesus himself. When we see those who are encamped on the sides of the road, see them as Jesus himself. And I think the reason Jesus says that is because when Jesus was on the cross, he took on the sins of the world. He became a drug addict on the cross. He became homeless. He, he became one of the least of these. And so he changed places with us. Because I should have been on that cross. You should have been on that cross. And Jesus took on the sins of the world. And said, he says in this text, as, as often as you do it unto the least of these, you do it unto me. You know, I like the old story of this, this mother, old mother who was serving in a soup kitchen. And every Saturday, they would serve meals to the homeless, and they would prepare the meals. And this old mother, she had been doing it for 20-plus years. And before, the, before they let the homeless people into the soup kitchen, she would always pray, Lord, help us to treat you well when you walk through the door. Lord, help us to be hospitable to you and to smile to you. Help us, Lord, to feed you and to care for you when you walk through that door in Jesus' name. She understood that the homeless person who walked through the door should be viewed as Jesus himself. She understood that the homeless person who walked through the door had the image of God within them. 
that they were image bearers of God. She understood the reality of what this text was saying. So here's the thing. Jesus wants us to see the homeless as himself. And I like what Mother Teresa said. She said, we think sometimes that poverty is only about being hungry, naked, and homeless. But the greatest poverty, the poverty of being unwanted, unloved, uncared for, is the greatest poverty of all. We must start in our own homes to remedy, remedy this kind of poverty. At the end of the day, the people on the streets, the people in our homes, they want to be loved. They want to be cared for. They want somebody to see them. And so we as Christians must come to the conclusion that when we see a homeless person, to say to ourselves, I see Jesus in you. Not because they're righteous, not because they're doing everything right, but because Jesus says, I am them. I am that homeless person. I am that person who's sick. And I know it's hard for us to to understand that, but that's what this text is implying. That Jesus identifies himself with the least of these. That the criteria that the king uses to separate the sheep from the goats are deeds of compassion and mercy to the least of these. Jesus has seen himself in them. He has seen the care and compassion that is indicative of those who follow him. And in this passage, Matthew gives us an apocalyptic perspective of Jesus as the reigning king of all the nations. And he pulls back the curtains of human reality and rewinds the DVD and show us the righteous and the unrighteous and what he has seen. So Jesus identifies himself with the least of these, but the story continues to go, go on. Jesus says, as he, as he has spoken to the righteous, and then he goes on and he begins to talk about those who did not do what they supposed to do. There's the sin of omission here. And it says in verse 40, the And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are cursed, depart from me into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they will also answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not care for you? 
Then he will answer, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Last thing I just want to say is Jesus is looking for a glimpse of himself in us. He's looking for just a glimpse of himself in us. That if we are rightly related to Jesus, then it ought to show up through our hands. If we're rightly related to Jesus, it it ought to show up in our service and in compassion. If we are rightly related to Jesus, it ought to manifest itself in our walk and in our talk. According to Jesus' teachings in Matthew 25, what should we be doing? I just got three questions I want want to ask you, and and we'll close with that. Who, Who are the needy people around you? What resources do you have available for serving the needs of others? In what practical, realistic way can you begin today to treat each person you meet as though he or she were Jesus? That's all I want to ask. In, In what practical, realistic way can you begin today to treat each person you meet as though he or she were Jesus. I would like to envision today like the story of Tony Benjamin and Derek Mitchell who's been in prison for 33 years. He's been in our prayer group for almost eight months now and we meet meet with him every Thursday. I began to see Jesus in Derek. Jesus reflected his character to me through Derek. And and Derek began to see Jesus in our prayer group. And the Jesus in us met with the Jesus in him. But it's not enough just to pray. As St. Augustine said, pray as if everything depends on God. But work is everything as if everything depends on you. My prayer is that we will one day play a role in getting Derek out of prison. He's done his time. He's been overlooked. As Brian Stevenson said in Just Mercy, there are so many men and women who are locked up in prison for a crime that they did not commit. And they just need mercy. They just need somebody to see them. Brian Stevenson said, the true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. Simply punishing the broken only ensures that they remain broken, and we do too. And each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the reality that you are the, that Jesus is the final judge. We thank you, Lord. Help us to see Jesus in every person we meet, Lord. And Lord, help us to, to be agents 
of care. To care for those who are hungry, to care for those who are locked up, to care for the least of these. As Jesus wants to do this through us. And Lord, we give you the glory and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As Pastor Aaron has just said, the true measure 